I hope this morning that is the, the honest prayer of your heart, that everything you need is in Christ, that he is satisfying and full and he is, he's it, he's all we need. And I know none of us have that perfectly, right? I mean, that's not true of me 100% of the time or probably even 50% of the time if I'm honest, but, but that's what we're here to grow in together is that Christ would be enough, that we wouldn't need Christ and whatever it may be in your life, but it would be him. And, and we could honestly say, man, he's it. This is, he's all that I need. So if I lose something else that's valuable to me, I, I'm okay. It's not fun, but he's it, and I have him. So I hope that's your prayer and your desire this morning, that, that he would be satisfying and full and rich for you in every moment of your life. Well, James chapter 5, we're getting very close to the end here. James 5 is where we're going to be. And I, I want to start this morning by reading you uh, the very beginning of that little booklet I talked about, uh, Do You Pray, by J.C. Ryle. Here's how it starts. I have a question to offer you. It is contained in three words. Do you pray? The question is one that none but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relations know. But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. I beseech you in all affection to attend to the subject I bring before you. Do not say that my question is too close. If your heart is right in the sight of God, there is nothing in it to make you afraid. Do not turn off my question by replying that you say your prayers. It is one thing to say your prayers and another to pray. Do not tell me that my question is unnecessary. Listen to me for a few minutes and I will show you good reasons for asking it. And then in the booklet, J.C. Ryle, who's a pastor in the 1800s, goes on to list many reasons why it is absolutely necessary for followers of Christ to be people of prayer. And here are a couple of the reasons that he says. He says, I ask again whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. And he says, I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. And he says, I ask whether you pray because diligence in prayer is the secret of imminent holiness. It's a challenging little booklet. It's packed in there. Every page feels like you're getting encouraged and challenged and rebuked. It's, it's wonderful. It's an important topic. I mean, prayer is difficult. I, I'm convicted this week as I study this passage of my own prayer life. This, prayer is one of the most difficult things for us to do with consistency as believers and with fervor, with passion. And I think there probably are many reasons for that. And in your small groups, you can discuss why it's so difficult. But I think one of the reasons, I know for me, one of the reasons why I don't pray as consistently as I should and with the passion that I should is because at times, I just don't think prayer is very effective or useful, honestly. I mean, I know it is. I know right mentally I'm supposed to say that. But when it gets down to deciding whether I'm going to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes quiet praying or whether I'm going to read something or 
talk to someone or pick up a book or whatever it may be, the other stuff always wins out because I think, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I just don't think prayer is that effective most of the time. And I think some of the reason for that is because we're very used to seeing results of work that we do or of actions that we take. We go to fix something, we fix it eventually, and we see the results of that. Now the fridge is working again, or the car is working again, and we see the results. But prayer, oftentimes we feel like we're just sort of throwing words out into the void. And our lives are so packed and so busy that it sometimes feels like a waste of time. Like I'm losing valuable moments of my life. And because of that, you and I, I think, need constant encouragement in this area. And my, James's goal and my goal is not to guilt anyone up this morning, but his goal is to say, man, you have an opportunity and this is effective and valuable and it is a worthy way to spend your moments, the moments of your life that you've been given. It's not a waste to sit there quietly and go to the Lord in prayer. And so James is going to try to motivate us and encourage us to approach this with more consistency and with more fervor. And so that's what we're going to see this morning in James 5, 13 to 18. I'd say it this way to give you the outline. Two elements of an effective prayer life is what we're going to look at. Two elements of an effective or a profitable prayer life. The first one of these It's found in verses 13 through the first part of verse 16. To have an effective prayer life, you and I need to observe the opportunities in front of us to pray. Observe the opportunities for prayer. Now, I told you last week that James here is drawing his letter to a conclusion, beginning in verse 12. If you look back up there, you can see it says, but above all. And so he's sort of saying, here are a few final important topics that I'm going to address with you. So last week, he talked about truthfulness in our speech. We discussed verse 12 at length. And now he moves to the second topic of of prayer, vitally important for our growth in wisdom and our growth in spiritual maturity. Just a quick glance through this passage. I don't know if you read it this week or if you're sitting there looking at it now, but a quick glance through verses 13 to 18 confirms that this is about prayer because the word prayer or pray is used seven times in these verses. So over and over again, he's emphasizing that this is the the topic that he's going after. Now you could see it as we get into verses 13 through the first part of verse 16 that the first element of an effective prayer life is we have to be able to recognize opportunities for prayer and take advantage of those, observe those opportunities, look for them. Know what circumstances you're approaching and then pray as a response to what is happening. And so we have to be alert to the different situations that demand prayer. They give us the opportunities to pray. So in this whole letter, we've been talking about wisdom, wisdom for wholeness. And wisdom in Proverbs is not just knowing what to do. It's not just having the right principle in front of you and and acting on it. It's knowing when to act on it. It's not just saying the truth. It's saying the truth in the right way in the right time. It's knowing when to do something. 
And, and that's what James is saying here. Observe the opportunities that are in front of you to pray. Know when to pray and, and when to respond in your life with prayer. And so there are particular moments in our lives that should naturally point us to the Lord. If you've read the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you know that he says to pray without ceasing. Every moment, in some ways, is an opportunity for prayer. And I think we, we would know that. It's always a good time to pray. But there are circumstances that a wise person encounters, and he says, ah, the right thing to do now is to go to the Lord in prayer. And James lists three of those circumstances here in these verses. And magnificently enough, they're all they're alliterated, all starting with the letter S. I love it when the biblical authors do that. The three circumstances are suffering, sickness, and sin. Three different times when we can observe those opportunities to go to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? So he throws this question out here, and it's the same word, suffering, that we saw in verse 10 of chapter 5. Look back up there. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so the prophets were suffering. They were they were enduring trials because of the way that they spoke the word of the Lord to kings, to other nations, and so they were suffering for that. And so in verse 13, James, in some ways, is still giving us instruction on how to respond to difficulties in our lives. When you're going through a tough time, a natural, immediate response to that should be to go to the Lord in prayer. Now, with the prophets, their suffering was very specific. It was persecution. But this word has a much broader range than that. It can include all sorts of difficulties and trials, both big and small. Are you suffering right now in your life? And I, I would say the answer for most of us is yes. There's, there's some level of strain and difficulty. It could be work. It could be family life. It could be financial, relational. There's some difficulty there in most all of our lives. And if there's not today, there probably will be this afternoon or tomorrow. It happens all the time. And James says this is the right opportunity to pray. Now, what's interesting in my own life is, maybe this is true of you too, is you know I'll, I'll go through a week where I'm not super consistent or effective in prayer, and then something will happen that's difficult, and I'll, I'll think I need to pray, and then the thought will strike me, oh, God's probably up in heaven going, oh, sure, now you want to come to me in prayer. I see how this is, right? It gets difficult, and then you want to come to me, and you need my help. But that's a completely inappropriate way to think of the Lord and his response to us, isn't it? I mean, that is, that is not how God is, is thinking of our suffering and viewing the difficulties that we're going through. I mean, that's not even close to consistent with his character at all. James commands us here to pray as a response to suffering because God uses suffering in our lives to draw us to himself. He wants us to pray in those moments. He's our good father, and when we have a difficulty, when we skin our knee, he wants us to run to him and bring that to him and ask him for wisdom and for help in the midst of that. And so there's no guilt and there shouldn't be any hesitancy in a moment of suffering, to run to our kind and good Father. You see this all over Scripture. Open your, the book of Psalms to almost any psalm, 
If you're reading through Psalms all over the place, David and others are experiencing suffering and trials, and what do they do with those, those trials? They go to the Lord. They seek his face. They ask him for help. This book, James, began with this. Let me flip back to chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, and wisdom specifically in how we deal with trials and respond to suffering, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who sits up in heaven and says, oh sure, now you ask, no. What does it say? Who gives generously to all without reproach. God doesn't think that at all. He doesn't reproach us at all for asking. He loves us to ask and wants us to ask and uses trials in our lives and suffering so that we will ask. And then he gives wisdom and responds generously and above and beyond what we deserve when we come to him and ask. And so suffering will be a part of life under the sun. It's with us and it will be with us until we reach eternity. And so we respond to suffering and trials by seeking God. But notice in verse 13, the second question that James asks there, we respond by seeking the Lord even when things are going well and when there don't seem to be any major difficulties on the horizon in front of us. Look there, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, often when things are going well, they're sort of humming along, and and it seems like life is good at the moment. All the dominoes are falling the right way. When that happens, we tend to forget that we need the Lord, and we tend to forget to go to him, and we we tend to forget to praise him and honor him for, for what's happening in our lives and thank him for that. And in our sinfulness, we twist that circumstance and we think somehow that we're responsible for things going well. Well, I've put in the effort and and maybe God is rewarding me for that. I've earned this for myself. And James says that the wise person turns to God in suffering, but also turns to God and praises him and thanks him when things are going well and when, when he's cheerful. So are you suffering? Turn to God. Are you peachy keen in your life? And turn to God. But James also addresses a more specific circumstance and encourages the people to pray for that as well. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this is another opportunity to observe prayer. And obviously, this is appropriate for our time right now. We think about physical difficulties and physical sufferings. But the particular circumstance that James is addressing is, is not, it doesn't seem to be a church member who is, has a little cold or has a runny nose. This person is so sick in, in their life that they have to have the elders of the church come to them. They can't even go and meet with the elders for prayer. They can't gather with the body, or it's very difficult to gather with the body. And so what James is describing here most likely is a person who is approaching death, or they're very, very sick at the moment. 
And so they call for the spiritual leadership of the church, the elders, and the elders come and pray over this person. But notice here in verse 14, they, the elders do something a little bit different than just pray. They, they pray, and that's the primary thing that they do, but they also anoint this person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this, this is used by the Roman Catholic Church to uh, back up what they call a sacrament of extreme unction, where someone who is near death is anointed with oil. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what's happening here because in this passage, the prayer is given by the elders for healing. It's not just a prayer over someone who is going to die and recognizing that death is imminent. This is a prayer for healing. And it's seeking the Lord if in his will he might perhaps heal this person. And so why do the elders anoint with oil here? Well, oil is used for a number of things in Scripture, and so it's a little bit difficult to get to this, but it's most often used to set someone apart. So think back to the Old Testament. The kings are anointed with oil. Why? To set them apart, to consecrate them for a specific task before the Lord. And so what's happening here is the sick person is anointed with oil, so that they are set apart to the Lord. It's a way for the elders to specifically consecrate this person and express that they want to set this person before the Lord in a significant way and beg the Lord for healing. Now, is this passage promising that the person will always be healed if this happens? It it seems to be that way in verse 15. Look there. And... The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It sure seems like James is saying, if you're sick and you call for the elders of the church and they anoint you with oil and pray that you will be healed and the Lord will raise you up. But I want you to notice in verse 15, it says it's the prayer of faith. And we have to understand what that means to pray a prayer of faith. Faith is not just confidence that this will happen. So the prayer of faith is not just me asking the Lord to to heal this person and then really, really believing that they're going to be healed. That's not the prayer of faith. Faith is in a person. Faith is directed to God. The prayer of faith is a prayer that is offered to him and relies on him. And it trusts, believes in his wise ordering of events and circumstances. And so the prayer of faith offers this person up to the Lord and says, God, we would love you to heal this person but we know that you know what is best and we trust you and your ordering of life and circumstances. And so if God chooses to heal, obviously that's awesome and that's something to be rejoiced in. But if God chooses not to heal and this person passes away, even after this prayer and anointing with oil, then God has done in his wisdom the best thing for everyone. He knows what is best. Now, it's interesting here, too, that the prayer of faith encompasses more than simply praying for healing. Look at verse 15 again. And if he has committed sins, he will be 
forgiven. And then the first part of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, in the ancient world during this time, sickness was very often associated with sin. So people sort of tied those two together. And and that's not inappropriate. The Bible does make that connection sometimes. I mean, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the, the Jews, the Israelites, that if they sin, if they reject him, if they pursue idols, they will suffer physically. They will get sick as a result of that. I mean, you can, you can read on into the book of Job. And Job's friends assumed that because he was physically ill and suffering that he had done something wrong. In the Gospels, in John chapter 9, there's the man who was born blind, and the people ask the question, who sinned, this man or his, or his parents? What's interesting in John 9, though, is Jesus pushes back against that belief that there's always a connection between sickness and sin, and he says it wasn't that anyone sinned, but it was for God's glory that this man was born blind. It's not always the result of sin. And so that's why James says here, if he has committed sins, there's an if, it's contingency. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's possible. It's possible that this person is sick because of sin. That that is a possibility. And we don't like to think about that, but that is a reality. That sometimes there's physical suffering and sometimes there's sickness directly related to sin. But that certainly is not always the case. And we never know if that's the case or not. And so it's unwise to make that connection for people. But what we do is we pray for healing. And we pray for healing and we pray for sin, if there's the possibility that sin is causing this. And what we do as the community of believers is we take sin seriously within our body. And that's why he says what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We take sin seriously in our body because sometimes it does result in sickness and physical difficulty. Verse 16 explains that. Confess your sins to one another. To confess is to say the same thing or to agree with God's position on this. And so we agree that what someone has said or done or ourselves, we agree with God that this is sin. We acknowledge it. And confessing here is commanded before God. Certainly we agree with him, but we also confess, we agree that our actions or our words were sin to one another. Now that sounds a little uncomfortable, So what what is James calling for here? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So so what's he asking here? Is he saying we should all get up at the end of the service this morning and publicly confess our sins to one another? Is he asking me to set up a little booth out there and have you come during the week and confess your sins as the Roman Catholic Church does? Is James saying here that we should only confess our sins to those we have sinned against? Is he saying that we should have times of corporate confession, responsive readings in church where we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sins before the Lord, we do that together? He doesn't give specifics, but the principle is one that we don't often think about and one we should consider, and I think consider well. 
Openness and honesty with one another regarding our sins should be a regular part of our Christian lives. If we're going to change and grow, then honest and op- honesty and openness about our sins is a part of that. It's confessing those to one another and to the Lord and a quickness and an eagerness to acknowledge it. And this should happen because we, we recognize the seriousness of sin. We don't underplay it. We don't underemphasize it. And when we recognize it and we're quick to confess it and deal with it and acknowledge when we've sinned against someone else in the body, then that keeps us from some of the consequences of sin, which could be sickness. And that's reality. And as we confess our sins to one another, then obviously he explains here that we need to pray for one another. And that's a result of that. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I messed up, I sinned, there's a humility to that that then very naturally should lead to a prayer for that person. Lord, help them, help me. It's so beneficial for us to do this. And so there's a prayer both for overcoming of sin and for physical healing, the power to resist temptation. And so in these verses, James gives us three circumstances that are opportunities for prayer. So be on the lookout for these. Suffering, sickness, and even sin in our lives provide the opportunities for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Now, why do we go to the Lord in prayer in these circumstances? And here's the heart of the passage, because prayer is effective. It's profitable. It's useful and beneficial, and it's powerful in our lives. And that's our our second element of an effective prayer life. You observe the opportunities. We're on the lookout for chances to pray, and we take advantage of those. But we will not take advantage of those. I will not pray consistently, regularly, if I don't pray perceive the potency of prayer. If I don't think it's worthwhile and effective and accomplishes things, then I'm not going to utilize the gift of prayer. It's very easy for us to feel like we're just speaking words out into the air and they're hitting the ceiling and coming back. But James really wants us to understand that prayer is is one of the most, if not the most, effective of spiritual disciplines and practices. The second half of verse 16 gives us what I think is the climax of this text. It's the principle that guides this whole and oversees this whole passage. Look there. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some of you may remember the King James language of this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much is the language there. You could say it like this as well. The working prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. The point is that prayer is working. It's not ineffective. It's not going out into the void. When we lift our hearts and when we lift our words to the Lord, it is working. And our prayers have the potency, the power to get a lot done and to get a lot accomplished. And so we pray in faith as a response to that. And you'll notice here 
The prayer offered is the prayer of a righteous person. Now, in the book of James, the righteous person is someone who obeys the will of the Lord. They're obedient to God. In James, I think the righteous person is someone who's pursuing spiritual wholeness. They want to be mature. But of course, in the broader scope of the New Testament, the righteous person and righteousness only comes through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not righteous on our own. We read Psalm 51 this morning. We are born in iniquity. We're not born righteous and desiring the Lord and wanting him. We are born in iniquity. And so something has to happen for us to have the status of righteousness. What has to happen is we have to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be united to him. God has to see us as righteous because of the work that he has accomplished. And then we have to be joined to him through faith in his work, through repentance of sins. All prayer, all prayer happens not as I am standing on my own righteousness, but all prayer happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. We only have access to God because we're in Christ, because his work has been accomplished on our behalf. All prayer is through Jesus, and that's why we pray in his name, in his name. That's not just a fancy way or a nice way to end our prayers. That is acknowledging that the only reason we can ever ask anything of the Lord is because of Christ. It's because we have his righteousness. It's the foundation on which we can pray. When we pray, we are literally entering into the relationships, the relationship between the members of the triune God. And we are approaching God the Father through the work of God the Son and by the motivation and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are entering into that relationship, which is an unbelievable gift of grace that we are able to do that. And so we pray in and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we stand on that foundation, have that opportunity to pray, those prayers are effective and they are working. They accomplish much. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When we pray, we're not shooting blanks. When we ask for wisdom in the midst of suffering, God will give it. He promises that. God will heal according to his will when we pray. It's effective. He will forgive our sins when we confess them and pray for one another. Prayers are working. And James gives us here a magnificent example of effectiveness in prayer. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I'm sure you're familiar with the prophet Elijah. He's one of the most prominent figures in the whole Old Testament. In fact, Elijah is one of the two men on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus. It's Moses and Elijah, the greatest of Old Testament prophets. He was one of the ones who performed some of the most miracles. A significant number of miracles happened during his ministry and then during 
the ministry of his follower, Elisha. He was used mightily of the Lord. And so that can be intimidating. I mean, he is a revered figure among, among the Jews and certainly among Christians as we read the Old Testament. And so that, that can be intimidating. We look at that and we think, well, that's Elijah though. I mean, that guy had some sort of a special thing with the Lord going on. And I don't got that thing. <laughs> like, he's here, I'm not. We're, there's a big difference between us. And James understands that reaction, and look what he says about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's so encouraging. There's nothing particularly amazing about Elijah. Nothing special. He was not superhuman. He didn't have a dedicated line to the Lord that no one else had. Special quick access to get to the front of the line in asking God for things didn't have super influence with the Lord above and beyond any of his contemporaries. And this is the main takeaway from this exhortation here. Effective prayer is not only for superhuman saints and for the most preeminent prophet in the Old Testament. It's not for, for pastors of 10,000 person congregations, authors of 50 books or more have special access to the Lord. That's not the case. It's not the case that some people get more accomplished than others just because of who they are through their prayer lives. The issue is not our nature. It's not us in our prayers. The issue is always the one that we're praying to, isn't it? It's always the one on the receiving end of our prayers. It's not the strength and the might of the one praying. If you go back to the book of Kings, and you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Kings 17 and verse 1, this is the first time we encounter Elijah. It says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And at first glance, you think, well, it doesn't even mention him praying there. But if you look closer, it says, before the Lord, before whom I stand. And Elijah recognizes that he represents the Lord and he stands before the Lord. And the idea is that he only speaks after he has spoken to God and stands before him. So he's already spoken to God about the rain. And then after three and a half years, which is amazing, in chapter 18, a lot happens in between. You should go read it. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to, the, to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. It's effective, it works, but not because of Elijah. What's unique about his prayer 
here is what I think is said in verse 17. He prayed fervently. James makes that emphasis. In Greek, it's like, if you, if you look at it in Greek, it's like saying he prayed and prayed. The verbs double up here. He prayed in his praying is kind of the way it goes. And, and what it's indicating is persistence. He stayed at it. He had a singular focus in his praying. He was not praying with a double mind, as we saw in James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Elijah came and prayed in faith, trusting the Lord to do what he was going to do. He prayed consistently, fervently, and he kept on doing it. And I think that's the, the key to his prayer here. He prayed in faith to God and trusted God for the outcome. And then he kept right on praying to him. And James's point is, it would be fruitless to keep asking if prayer didn't accomplish much. And that's why Elijah prayed fervently and consistently and prayed in his praying, because he knew God had the power and the authority, knew God was capable, and so he knew that he had access and that his prayers would be heard. And then he could leave it in God's hands. And so as you're if you're thinking about this for your own life and an effective prayer life, I would sort of bring these two elements of an effective prayer life together like this. I would say learn to pray in a variety of circumstances. Pray regularly, pray in response to all sorts of things, and when you pray, know that God is ready and capable of working and your prayer accomplishing much and accomplishing much in two areas, out there and in here. Because when we pray, God works and changes circumstances and heals people and forgives sins, but he also changes us and he conforms our will to his and makes us think differently. And our minds and our hearts are changed by that, by the prayer of faith. So this morning, Walk away from this passage being encouraged. Keep at it. If you haven't been keeping at it, go to it. Pray. Pray in faith. Because we have a God who is sovereign and who is good and who is capable. And the prayer of a righteous man standing on the work of Christ accomplishes much in this world and in our church and in us as individuals. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege to come to you in prayer. We're so thankful for this passage. Build us up. Encourage us this morning. Help us this week to set aside moments of time where we can seek you out and pray to you. Two minutes here, five minutes here, ten minutes here, Lord. Help us to build these moments into our lives to respond to circumstances by seeking your face, and by praying to you. We're so thankful that you are powerful and good and that you work on our behalf to accomplish good. We love you. We're so thankful for you, for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.